History, Lecture 15 of Rabbi Weiss. We are talking about the great, great uh, transcendent beings, uh, Elia Cohen, Hannah, Hannah's son, Shmuel, and we just uh, began to meet Eli's sons, Chofni and Pinchas, Tzadikim, sometimes misunderstood by those who don't have um, Chazal and Midrashi Chazal at their side, um, they acted L'Shem Shemayim. So then, what you have to say, what we left for today is, how do we account for the psukim that say that they were sinners? And the answer is a consistent answer because there's, an assistant, there's, there's a consistent approach in Torah, in Tanakh. The Torah and the Tanakh dish the dirt intentionally. The Torah has, and the, 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 our, our Bible has little interest in telling us benign information. Remember, these are written, these are words written by our great prophets, in the case of Shmuel, by Shmuel himself, um, trying to teach us lessons, trying to rebuke us, trying to show us how we can be better. And so they often are very harsh, especially with Siddiquim, um, about relatively light matters. So in the case of Chofni and Pinchas, they delayed women bringing their kabonos. And when, by doing so, the Pasuk is harsh with them, they, they should have been more enthusiastic and alacritous and, and, and zrizim matim in the mitzvot. And so the Pasuk express, expresses that as if they lay with the women. They didn't lay with the woman. Another meaning of the term is they delayed bringing the women's korbanos. Um, the, uh, they were, the Pasuk describes how as they, they took more gifts Remember, the Kohanim have 24 gifts that they received from the other Jews and that they took more than they were due. Um, the Chazal explained it wasn't they, it was their assistants, their, their lads, their youth, their na'arim. Um, and that Hashem was angry at their youth and Chofni and Pinchas should have protested, should have been more diligent and caught their assistants for taking advantage of their high position and they didn't do that. And as a result, they're punished. Um, now, as the, as the plot thickens, one night when Shmuel is um, around the age of 13, he, they've, they've, gone to, they've gone to bed, right? It's, it's, it's after the day and the night of learning Torah, and Shmuel suddenly hears a voice calling his name. And he approaches Eli, and he says, what? And Eli says, nothing. I didn't say anything. Go back to sleep. And this pattern repeats itself. And uh, Ultimately, Eli realizes Shmuel is not just hearing voices, he's not just dreaming, but he is being spoken to by Hashem. He's getting a vision, and we know that Shmuel is one of the great prophets up there, uh, ranking in terms of prophecy, not quite Moshe Rabbeinu, not quite Yeshaya, who's often considered the second of the leading, of the, of leading prophets, but right up there. Uh, some say maybe Shmuel's second to Moshe, uh, I don't, it's not a competition, but he's, he, this is the beginning of prophecy, and he doesn't recognize it, but Eli, the senior, the, the elderly, Kohen Gadol and Shofet, does recognize it. Um, Shmuel finally hears the voice, he responds, and Hashem speaks to him. And he says, he predicts what's going to be with Eli's family. Uh, and it's not good news, to say the least. Eli then, later on, tries to get from Shmuel what did Hashem say, and Shmuel is evasive. He doesn't want to share tragic news to Eli, understandably. We don't want to be the bearers of, of, of bad news, let it just transpire as is. Um, the bad news ultimately comes out, and Eli gets it. His family is going to be punished 
for Chofni and Pinchas's sins. And again, it's a sin of being somebody who's a role model in a position of leadership, of authority, and if you are not completely above and beyond suspicion. You remember Moshe Rabbeinu in the Torah, the Gemara tells us, didn't have an inseam in his garments. Remember why he didn't have an inseam in his garments? All those machzits of shekel coins, all that money that passed through his hands, people should see that the servants of the public, the leaders, um, aren't, aren't going to tuck an extra coin in the inseam of their garment. They have to be, in other words, totally beyond any suspicion, any, any shady dealings. And when Chokhmi and Pinchas weren't quite as punctilious as they should be, that was a taint on the entire household. And Hashem says that the household then is going to be cursed as follows. All men, are going, before they reach old age, would die by the sword. Um, they would die prematurely. At 18, Chazal teach that um, they could extend this through Torah and Maisim Tovim, through, uh, by, by learning Torah and by doing good works. And we're going to pay attention to all these details. Many of the things that we learn now in history will come back and figure prominently later on. We're going to meet some very prominent figures from the Talmud who are descendants from the house of Eli. So here the curse is uttered, and uh, soon enough we're going to see it enacted in the story of Chofni and Pinchas. Years later, they go out to war against the Plishtim. Remember, the Plishtim have been slumbering after Shimshon, and now they rise like a lion to attack the Jews. And there's a major war in a place identified as Evan Ha'ezer. I'd like to guide here the speculation. We're not sure where this is exactly, but the reasonable guess is in, it's in a place called Izbet Charta, which is just near Rosh Ha'ayin, not far from the airport or Petah Tikva today. And um, that is where the battle takes place between the Plishtim and the Jews, and the Jews lose miserably, so badly, the sons make another mistake. They think that if they take the Aron Kodesh, the Holy Ark, out to war, that that would serve them well. It would be, as it were, sort of a good luck charm, look, good luck charm and the opposite is true. By the way, there are related halachas um, regarding a Sefer Torah, to be really careful with the Sefer Torah, uh, you can't just take it out, stop, for no reason. And there are discussions about when and under what circumstances you could, clearly to serve the public, to read it, that's fine. But just to go, I remember we asked my, when my twins had their bar mitzvah, uh, six and a half years ago, they were laning and they were preparing and they were eager to practice on a real Sefer Torah and they asked the Rav, of the shul, could they take out a sefer Torah to practice? And he said, no, that was not grounds enough. He said, take a tikkun sofrin, take a um, take something that you know, like the tikkun that people use, but don't use an actual sefer Torah. Be reticent about taking it out. And Chofni and Pinchas should have realized they take the Aaron out to battle. Um, it's captured. The plishti make off with the Aaron Kodesh, and that's a story that we're going to tell soon enough. Correct. Right. And we're going to talk about it because it also plays a major role in history. Um, why is it captured? So based on a verse, based on a pasuk in Tehillim, the Jews are punished because they angered Hashem by having their bamos. Now, you remember what a bama is? And I'm not referring to the United States president. A bama is a high place where they offered sacrifices. Was that always prohibited? Remember what we said here before? 
No, there were times that they were okay to offer sacrifices from high places, namely before Shiloh, before when the Mishkan was in Gilgal. After Shiloh, very soon, they'll be permitted again when the Mishkan moves to Nov and then Givon. Right now, in Shiloh, the Bamos are absolutely prohibited. And um, what's interesting is it doesn't identify which Bamos were the Jews violating. And so Chazal fill in, they actually didn't have the classic, you know, uh, avoda kind of Bamo where they offered a sacrifice, but rather, and see, here's another test of if you're keeping track of the important historical developments, there is what's called figuratively a Bama up in Dan in the north of the country. Does anybody remember what's up there still? Do you remember what it is? Good. The Pesel Shalmicha. Remember Micha, that whole twisted oh, episode? It's still no, there, but, but hundreds of years later. But, it's, but, but that is a Voda. Right, it's a kind of a Voda, it's true, but it's not it's a right, classic right Bama. Correct, right. it's not a classic Bama, but it's still there. And because of this Pesel Shalmicha, and there's something else that actually comes a little bit later, there's the Aphod of Gidon. Remember that he initially makes Hashem Shemayim a certain garment that was, that was built in celebration of his victory over Amalek in Midian. And the Jews used it again. They, they, it was a snare to them and they used it for poor things and they never got rid of it. Because of these things, never getting rid of, never getting rid of the Pesel Shemicha and the Ephod Shel Gidon, the Aron Kodesh, the Holy Aron. What's inside the Aron Kodesh at this stage in history? The Luchos Abris. Which ones? The first one. The first ones that have been broken and the second ones that are whole. And they're taken out to battle <coughs> and the, 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 they're lost. Later. Soon we're going to see what else is going to be put in there. The man, the man, that's later. The man's going to be placed there later. Yes. But, uh, I, but I thought they, they also didn't ask uh, Hashem for help in the battle. They also didn't ask help. That's, that's also included in the Psukim. Right. Um, the the, the it's not that Chofni and Pinchas are blamed for the battle, and they're not blamed for the loss of the Aaron. Rather, because it's a collective responsibility of the Jewish people, they should have gotten rid of the stupid pestle, they should have gotten rid of the stupid aphod. They didn't, they were negligent, and they lose their holy Aaron Kodesh. It's temporary loss, but a tragic one nonetheless. And the Plishtim crush the Jews. It is a terrible defeat. And we're not used to so many defeats. At this point in history, most of our battles have been, right, we, we're, we're, uh, we're now, um, we're, we're, we're many victories and now two major defeats at Ha'ai and now in Eben Ezer. Chofni and Pinchas are both killed. And a messenger escapes, manages to get back to Shiloh and informs the elderly Eli, the father, who's 98 years old, he's blind, He's sitting, he's sitting on his chair in the, in the area of the Mishkan. He hears all, he hears the tragic news. What's interesting, he hears the news of the death of his sons and he's bereft. He hears the news of the loss of the Aram Kodesh and he's destroyed and he falls over backwards in such an angle that he breaks his neck and dies. But what Chazal pick up on, and it's a significant point, the loss of his sons is a personal tragedy. <coughs> the loss of the Aaron is a national uh, catastrophe, and that's what kills Eli. And these people, with all their flaws, are on such a lofty level that the national tragedy is what they feel most deeply. 
and, and he hears the tragedy and, uh, and dies. His daughter-in-law, the widow now, hears of the, the death of her husband and, his, and the brother, but it's the news that the Arun Kodesh is lost that really hits her the hardest, and she goes into labor prematurely. She gives birth to a boy, and she names him E Chavod, lack of honor, because the Aaron Kodesh falling into the hands of these lowly, I mean, the police team were foul individuals, idolaters of the lowest grade, not the lowest. Knanim and Mitzrim were worse, but they're pretty bad with their, with their various gods, the Dagon, which we saw already. Um, and she names the child after this tragedy, Ichavod. She then, in her righteousness, she's so great, she lays dying. And all she can think about is the loss of the Aaron Kodesh. The name that's not so common, but Ichabod, you've heard of Ichabod Crane, is named for this boy. Not a common name among Jews. Ichavod is what she names the boy because of the national tragedy. The Plishtim move on and they go to, to Shiloh and after 369 years that the Jewish center of gravity is in Shiloh, uh, the Mishkan has been centered in Shiloh and we said that this is where everything takes place, Shiloh falls and it falls disastrously. A later pasuk in Yirmiyahu Anavi um, describes the fate of Yerushalayim, Chas Shalom, he warns the Jews before Jerusalem is destroyed in the first temple period, he warns them, Chas Shalom, you don't want the fate of Jerusalem to resemble the fate of what happened to Shiloh. Shiloh is destroyed. What's not clear in the Psukim, but becomes evident when you see later on, the Mishkan resurfaces. So clearly, at some point, the major elements of the Mishkan must have been transferred to Nov, the next center. No, which is south of Shiloh. Kohanim, right? Novid, right, we're going to tell that story as well. The, the Nov and the Kohanim of Nov. But Nov is just a small village, and that's where the Mishkan moves for, four, for um, give me a second, 44 and 13. It's there for 13 years. People get confused, so let me clarify this. Oh, Akiva, I've already lost you. Uh, people get confused. Get this one thing. This is a really important thing. So the Aaron Kodesh now is out with the Plishti. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But that's not the same thing as the Mishkan, right? The Aaron is simply the centerpiece of the Mishkan, it's, but it's, it's the Holy Ark. The Mishkan is the general structure with the Mizbeach and all of the, all of the elements that we use for Hodes Hashem. That now has moved to Nov. <coughs> um, Nov will be destroyed, we'll see that soon enough. The Mishkan will move to Givon for 44 years. Finally, it's brought to what's called the Beis HaOlamim, Yerushalayim Mirakodesh. The Kedusha of Shiloh, Shiloh had a certain, Shiloh had a certain Kedusha, that was because the Aaron was present. Without the Aaron, the Mishkan is uh, not quite its former self, therefore it doesn't have the same Kedusha, and that's why now, for the first time since Gilgal, the Jews are allowed to offer Bamos. So that if you wanted to build a Mizbeach in your own backyard or in your, the center of town, and L'Shem Shemaim offered Korbanos to Kodesh Baruch Hu, you can do that, it reflects a decline in the times that that's the reality. We don't have a centered, central place. Nov is not like Shiloh, it's not a replacement. Certainly it's nothing like Yerushalayim. And that's the nature of the days in, where we, 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 in which we find ourselves right now. It's an unstable period. Meanwhile, I guess in the cartoon strip, meanwhile, down in Eretz Plishtim, um, the Aaron Kodesh is taken by the Philistines. They take it to the temple of Dagon in Izdud. That's what the Arabs call ancient Ashdod. 
Um, and lo and behold, what happens? The next morning, after they prop up the Aaron Kodesh next to their gods, they find the statue of Dagon lying down on its face before the Aaron. It, the, the story ref- echoes what story that you know that's also famous? Avram Avinu and his father's shop. Right? So here it's a slight different it, twist of the details. But now the uh, Gidon, also interesting story. So now it's lying prostrate in front of the Aaron. And the Philistines are not too pleased. Their God is lying before this Jewish ark. So what they do is they prop up the, uh, the God one more time. The next morning, lo and behold, they find it. This time, not only prostrate, but smashed to pieces. They can't put it back together again, Humpty Dumpty. It, Ashdod now becomes infested with, um, with rats and with uh, what could be called, and in modern Hebrew, the, the word in Hebrew is tchorim, which in modern Hebrew, which is not the same thing as Lashon HaKodesh, they call it hemorrhoids, but I can't believe that they were exact hemorrhoids. There's some kind of mystical, um, miraculous, terrible plague, um, sometimes referred to as tumors. The people get really sick, and they get these vermin all over the place, and it's unmistakable. It's because they stole our, our, our holy ark. Um, I don't think that in any of the Indiana Jones movies, when they're running after the Aaron Kodesh, that they quite replicated these scenes. But with the melting Nazis in the very, uh, the very that uh, penultimate scene, uh, you, you get a semblance. It's not really a good idea to mess with the Kodesh Baruch Hu's holy objects, just in case anybody's getting any ambitions around here. You know, I know we're studying this. We're, de- we're right down the street from the base of Olami ourselves these days. So if you have any such ambitions, you might want to pause first. The Temple Institute is a place that I can talk about a lot. I'm actually, what's that? Sure, Machon the Mikdash. I'm assuming you're talking about. I know it very well. I guide there frequently, and it's problematic. Um, the Gedolim have expressed that in very pronounced ways. They are, it's a one, for me, a wonderful place, educational, they provide wonderful educational <laughs> tools, but their ideology sometimes run, runs afoul of, I think, what, what, what we call Bastaira, and, um, and they, they, yeah, there's problems there, including there's a question, and they, they have an answer to this, but there is a question in general. One is forbidden from replicating uh, the objects of the Holy Temple, their answer is they're replicating them, not stam, not just to have them, but rather to use them. So when you see, let's say you walk, is it still there? They've moved it in different yeah, times. No, but no, as no, you right. walk down the steps to yeah, go to the coastal, they have a model of the of what might be the menorah. It's a machlokas rishonim, what the menorah, how the menorah was actually shaped, but is a version of the menorah that they recreated, not for show. I mean, even though presently that's how it's being used, but rather they hope to use it tomorrow or today if we can rebuild the base of Mikdash. So those are those are questions, and 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 uh, not so clear that those that what they're doing is entirely legitimate. Yeah. Uh, they have raised they've raised um, unknown massive sums of money. I'll, I don't know this for sure, but I have a strong sense, and having guided there and knowing a lot of people involved in the place, it seems to me. That they um, that a large source of their funds is is the um, evangelical Christian world. Isn't that ironic? Uh, go figure. Especially if you know some history, and at the end of this year, that statement will take on added extra irony. 
interesting observation. Well, I think you're on to something, well, Jake. Well, well, I don't know, because the gold from Egypt was used to bear her. Right. Mission. There's a question if it's actual money from Vodazara. It's not used for a Vodazara. Ideologically, you're on to something. It's not quite precise what you're saying, especially if you destroy the Vodazara and you use it now. You upgrade it, as it were, Miley the Kedusha. You upgrade it for holy purposes. Adorava, quite the contrary. Maybe there's no better use for it. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, this is my, we live in, we live in, um, in, in a multifacetedly ironic period, which time in history. Um, today, it's moved within the last couple of years. They have a newer, newer better facility. When, when were you there last? Oh, so it's moved since then, and it's a much more uh, respectable place and a nicer museum. Mostly nice. There's a few things that, could, that I like the old, I preferred the old, ver old place. But it's just, it's on Miskab Ladakh, Ladakh Street, um, just above the steps where you'd walk down from the Jewish Quarter where the restaurants are towards the area of the oh, southern area of oh, the Kosel. The, the menorah is there, but it's above there. It's above there. Anyway, that's Where's the Temple Institute. Oh, this was not meant as an advertisement for the Temple. Wait, Although, I don't think I'm really their spokesperson. It's so it's actual size. They've approximated it. Uh, but I mean, like, it's too scale, basically. You're going to get me started. We're going to talk the whole day about the place because I have all kinds of big issues and small issues. And there's Machlokos, Machlokos Rishonim about, about so they, many of these details. We don't know, for example, today, what exactly is the blue of Tchelos. We don't know what the red of the Shani is. We don't know so many details. They're approximating. They're paskining, but that in itself, are we entitled to paskin today? Um, there is a strong consensus among many of the Akronim that um, we have to wait for Elia Navi's return to give us direction about how's it going to look. Uh, according to many Rishonim, Rashi and Tosfos among them, the Besa Mikdash, the third version, is going to come prefab, pre-made from the Shemaim anyway, in which case what business do we have starting to make these things anyway? Um, fine, you're going to get me started and I'm never going to get out of here. Since I'm on the topic, I might also say another major piece. I'll repeat this, I'm sure, at another time. It'll come up in another lecture, but I think it's a big deal. Um, if you, they, I believe in the Shem Shemaim, I, today, I, I, this last summer, I, um, did it, I can guide there now officially because I did their course a little bit and I, we heard from their leader, the, the founder of the institute. I believe he's a very Lashim Shemaim uh, individual who I don't agree with and I think the, the Gedolim don't agree with him. But um, they would defend their actions as saying if Hashem doesn't see Klal Yisrael eagerly anticipating the rebuilding of the base of Mikdash, why should you rebuild the base of Mikdash? We don't really care about it, they claim. Therefore, their activities are the Shem Shemaim, trying to show Hashem just how dearly we hold the base of Mikdash, how deeply we want it to be rebuilt. And they would claim to be the, among the more enthusiastic members of Kuala Yisrael today in all their activities. I would counter, if you really want to serve Hashem, do it the way, the old style, the old fashioned way of the Torah, do it by learning Torah. There are individuals who I would, uh, I would assert are doing even more for Klal Yisrael. For example, you're familiar with the, one of the great Torah institutions in the world, Brisk. In Brisk, famously, they learn a lot of things. They're top-level Thamene Chachamim, but among the famous... Brisk is right down the street from where we are right now. Brisk Yeshiva, from the Brisk Rav, from Rav Velvela. No, not a small Navi. No, 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 further down. I, I'll tell you where it is another time. We'll go on a tour. But, um, but uh, they today have a specialty. They learn Kodshim. 
There's six tractates, there's six orders, excuse me, in the Mishnah. Kachim deals with everything to do with the base of Mikdash. It's a, it's a, it's, they're Masechtas that are often neglected in almost every yeshiva and kolal in the world. But in Brisk, for example, they're learning it. And if you learn it, detailed. It's, it's as involved as any sugya, if not more so, in, in, in Shas. And they're learning it so that they're ready when it's time, when the time is right, when the Mashiach comes tomorrow or, or the next day or the next day, uh, to rebuild the base of Mikdash. So I would assert that in that, they're doing more for Klal Yisrael and trying to ready the ground, as it were, for the, uh, for the base of Mikdash to be rebuilt. Because the temple is a Jew also wants uh, the rights of Jews on the temple. It's a different organization technically. They're called the, the faithful of the Temple Mount. But interestingly, and not not coincidentally, many of the members of this also affiliate with that. Yeah. Because you can see a similar ideology. By the way, this is all part. This is all part of the history class. Late next spring, as we describe the hopefully as many of the different groups of Jews that exist today, this will be. Um, you know, they deserve their own discussion. So I may repeat myself then, but I have more to say. On this, can I move on? But go ahead, Ilan. Quick, quick thought. Um, do you think that Mashiach is going to come tomorrow? Really, really oh, I don't know. We we live with our lives, you know. B'cholio machakel, no, right? No, no. So, based on the concept that like you should hope that Mashiach comes every day, so sure. Why do you plan like for have push people for Shabbat? Oh no, we plan around. We plan life. Why do we? Why do we make any? We just had a whole staff meeting about Rosh Hashanah. Uh, why do we? Why do we make any plans? We we go about our life. We go about our business. It's a fine line. We can't push off the mitzvahs that we're supposed to do not only today but tomorrow and the next day as well but we also wait expectantly and, and excitedly for at any moment the Mashiach could come. It's such a fine line that another thing that we're going to talk about is the problem of what, what four generations ran afoul of the Kaddish Baruch and some would argue many more than just four but Chazal cite four generations who were what's called Dochek Es Hakates who, as it were, tried to push a Kaddish Baruch Hu's hand by um, trying to be too insistent. We want Mashiach, we want Mashiach now. And some would say that that's too insistent. There's a, there's a, there's a very gray area between a hakelo, a holyom, away from every day, versus actually proactively and aggressively, politically, campaigning for it to happen. Rakofa probably is the most famous of such a generation who he became incredibly chutzpudek. He said, don't bother me. I'll take care of it, he said to Kaddish Baruch Hu. We'll, we'll bring about the Messianic era, indicating decisively that he was not Mashiach. Clearly not Mashiach, he was a major Russia. Um, but there have been other generations, and perhaps some in our generation, also run afoul of this prohibition of being dochek esakates. Meanwhile, down in Ashdod, they're dying of hemorrhoids and rats. Uh, right, as we as we left left last left our anti-heroes with the Aaron Kodesh, and they realize this Aaron Kodesh is really no good, and so they move the Aaron first to Ekron and then to Gat. All of these these are the these are three of the five uh, Philistine cities, the Pentapolis, and in each place the similar plagues follow them: hemorrhoids and rats everywhere. Chorim and Achbarim, until finally the police team realize it's really not good luck. So after seven months, they return it to the Jewish people, to Klal Yisrael. Um, there is a community of Jews in Beit Shemesh, Ir Shemesh, and they bring it back, and they realize they can't just bring it back empty-handed, but they actually bring it back with gifts. The gifts are golden tributes shaped like Torim and Achbarim, rats and hemorrhoids. You got it. Uh, and they bring it to Am Yisrael in Beit Shemesh, 
to a field of a certain fellow by the name of Yoshua, who then offers korbanos. And, 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 and Klal Yisrael, who are located there, make a terrible mistake. They mean well, and they did badly. What happens is, they're punished for rejoicing too much. At the return of the Aaron Kodesh, hold the thought, when the, when the Aaron Kodesh comes back to Klal Yisrael, they're understandably happy, but they go overboard. And um, it would have not been a sin probably in a lesser time period, like in our days, Halavai, we should have Shet Simcha on the return of the Aaron Kodesh, but in this period, um, they should know better. And the people who go overboard actually go so far as to look into the Aaron Kodesh like the Nazis at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, that style, that's where they get that image. In, in, uh, it, when, you know, I told you, this is when Harrison Ford turns to Karen Allen, he says, Marion, don't look. And she closes his eyes, he closes his eyes, everybody else looks, and they all, they all melt like, uh, like the Wicked Witch of the, of the East. Um, right? So they, um, bad things happen to people who do this, and, and they're struck dead, and the others become smitten with, you got it? Rats and hemorrhoids. There's a theme going on here. Uh, after which the Aaron can't stay in Beit Shemesh and it's moved to, I take personal pride in this one, Kiryat Yarim, which today has an alternate name, tell Stom where I live. And we think, it's speculated that that's the place, it's a reasonable argument that that's the place, and in Kiryat Yarim, really Givat Kiryat Yarim, up on the hill, um, the locals give it a proper Kabbalah's puni, which means reception. And they don't overdo it and nobody looks inside, they realize they've got to treat it with tremendous reverence, no messing around with the Shem's holy Aaron, with the Ar- with the Luchos Abris, nothing less than the Ten Commandments inside. And because they know how to give it proper honor, it stays in Kiryas Yarim for 20 years. It's supervised, it stays in the house of Avinada. By the way, the street names in Telstone, you have Avinada Street, you have Alazar Street, it's all named after, not all of them, but many of them are named. After this, after this, after these great figures, and uh, Avinadav's son Elazar is sanctified. Specifically, he's entrusted to watch and make sure that nothing happens to the Aron Kodesh and that nobody behaves disrespectfully. And I'm just going to finish the thought. Then Barak Yiran. Um, it's striking because this, the next 20-year period is incredibly tumultuous. Lots of stuff happens. Wars, monarchies, turnover. And in a peaceful, quiet little Kiryat Yarim, nothing much takes place because the Jews know how to be no head covered with the Aron. And it comes to re- re- reassert this idea that we know is true, it's in all the parshas, it's in all throughout the Torah. Behave yourself, Kaddish Baruch Hu takes care of you. Don't behave yourself, you're in trouble. Right? And so even that, can, that can even um, pertain to a little corner of the world like Kiryat Yarim. Go ahead. Wait, do we not have time for the cow story though? How they actually... How the Philistines actually got it to Israel? I think that's a great story. It is a great story. I don't do everything. I'm not comprehensive here. Does it have any good message you want to read for us? Yeah. Barak Yiran, take it. Well, wait, 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 is there a mountain in here in Kiryar? Is there what? A mountain. So actually, there are two places. This is not critical for history, but I'll tell you as a tour guide, the way it works like this. There is a place called Kiryat Yarim, and then there's Givat Kiryat Yarim, which is right across the way, but separate. The first is on the northern border of Yehuda. The second is on the southern border of Binyamin. Reasonable speculation that I can elaborate at another time would indicate that the Kiryat Yarim um, is actually up the hill in the location of the Nevei what was formerly the Nevei Yeshiva, up at the top of the hill in Telstone. 
Givat Territorium is across the street, outside of today's Telstone, and today, sadly, a Franciscan church stands there the, uh, with the big pestle of Odazara, big, big statue of idolatry. That's where the ancient archaeology, archaeological site um, is, where they actually date things back to the right time, this time period. And there's no, you can't get there unless you go through the church, which you're not allowed to do. Um, you can't really access the archaeological ruins. Two places, one right across, and they are both hills. And that, that really does fit topographically and historically, and, and every, everything else does line up pretty nicely. No, they don't go up on top of the hill. No, it's not a place. I mean, I can tell the story, but there's not much to see outside of going to the church and seeing the archaeological ruins. You said that the Bet Shemesh had the Correct. Well, surely they were only looking to make sure that there was something still in. They were motivated. Surely, first of all, please don't call me Shirley, but go ahead anyway. Yeah. They were just making sure that there's still uh, still something in the Aaron Ah, they want to make sure that the Christian that is only with schools on the Jews, and they still shouldn't have done it. Right. They should know better. There are ways of going about doing that. Maybe they could they could find just like the base of Mikdash. They um, didn't set their eyes, and they couldn't. There was no Mihila by looking at the inside of the Kodesh Kedoshim, and even so, the Gemara Mesopim describes when they did the Shiputzim, they did the renovations that they had to do occasionally, they were lowered down and they didn't look. They went to great pains to find the, the best way of doing it without actually looking. And here the people just looked. They didn't go to great pains, they didn't treat it with adequate kavod. Again, for you and me, Kodesh Barkham probably wouldn't have faulted us. He would have said, like Daryl style, you guys, you can be make you. You do what you want to do. Hashem sees your generally good rutsum. These people are operating on a very, very sophisticated high level where they should have known better. But uh, real quick. All right. So, so after the plagues, the Philistines wanted to test Hashem one last time. And, and, they, and they said, that because, because they still didn't believe that the plagues were from Hashem. So, so they moved, so they attached the Ark of the Covenant to these nursing cows. What? To cows, cows that, that are nursing, to mother cows, and and cows never leave their children. There's no reason, and so the cows were actually in tears. They were crying, and uh, as they carried away, that's animals sometimes perceive things that human beings miss, and and so so that's just proving that even though Hashem punished the Jews, He also didn't want the Philistines to have it. So that that was the key to it. Very nice. Thanks for thanks for the addition. I welcome this, by the way. You have you have anything you want to add, subtract, correct, correct? Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm grateful. I, I, I you know, history is very rich and open. So there's a lot of places we can go. Shmuel Anavi emerges as as the dominant figure of this period. He descends from you all know this. Who's his ancestor? Not righteous ancestor. Shmuel Anavi. Come on, you know this. Think of the Torah. He's got a Parsha named after himself, not for good reasons. Falls in the middle of the earth. Eli, go ahead. No, 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 no. Except somebody said it. Not Balak. Korach. 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 Remember, Bnei Korach, um, got, as they fell into the, uh, the, the cavernous mouth of the, of, the, of the earth, they managed a, a little bit of a jutting out cl- um, cleft in the rock, caught them, and they didn't fall to their uh, to Gehenna. Um, in the middle of the earth, and they were saved, and from their descendants, among their descendants, were Shmuel the Navi, who's the greatest Navi, as we said, after Moshe and Yeshaya. He's referred to as Rabban Shel HaNevim. He's the rabbi of Nevim because he really heralds the period that's called the prophetic period. Doesn't mean that he's the first Navi. We've already met many great prophets, among them Avos and Sari Menu and others. We talked about the females, the males. 
but he heralds the beginning of the big time prophetic period where the Nevi'im, and we're going to spend time especially talking about the Nevi'im, they're incredibly interesting and important. Um, he is sometimes, the Gemara Brachos famously says, Shakul Keneged Moshe and Aaron. He, the verse equates him with Moshe and Aaron on a certain level together. He's the author of three, at least three, great works, namely... No, not, jo- not Joshua, not Yoshua, maybe the end of Yoshua, but three whole works of, which books? Shoftim, which we've seen. Shmuel, which is only, which is one book. The fact that we have Shmuel, Aleph, and Beis, that's, that's a Christian division, not a, not a Jewish division. So Shmuel, all of, in its entirety, was written by Shmuel in the third book. It's one of the Megillos. We've seen it as well. We've talked about it recently. Ruth. But Shmuel was dead in halfway through Shmuel. Correct. So, so, so what the the uh, the the Gemara Baba tells us that those parts that he was not alive for, Nosan and God, his disciples filled in the blank. Correct. Nosan and God completed it. Although you have to realize, being dead and then you know finishing the book is not really a big kasha on a prophet who what a part of prophecy it's only one detail people often just think that prophets predict the future and that's the only thing they do they do a lot more as we'll talk about but they do predict the future so it's not a kasha to say yeah, that he couldn't I, know the future okay fine anyway Nelson, the, the gemara says Nelson and god did it that we talked about that. Yeah. We talked about that here. We, there's a machlok in some say it was Moshe with a tear, others say it was Yoshua. Okay. Um, he judges, he's also a shofet, and he's, 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 he's a judge, the last judge of Klal Yisrael for 10 years, all the way up until the first monarchy begins, which is our discussion tomorrow. Um, 20 years after stealing the Aaron Kodesh, it's still in Kiri Arim, the Plishtim attack, Yisrael in the Mitzpah. We've seen Mitzpah already. Remember when the Jews gathered to have the big battle uh, against Binyamin, the tribe of Binyamin, during the episode of the Pilegish Megivah. So now they're back in Mitzpah, which is Shmuel's major center. Um, Shmuel appeals to Hashem, please help us against these Philistines. He gathers an army. Hashem brings a victory. And Shmuel achieves for the first time national prominence. Um, as we said, he's got a, he, he establishes a group of, of prophet, prophets. Uh, they start a school for prophecy. It's actually tax exempt. You know why? You can always make it ta- tax exempt if it's a nonprofit organization. Oh, sorry. The, uh, Wait, what do you mean by a school for prophets? Yeah, he taught. That's, that's, that's what it is. He teaches Tyra. He is the next stage in the Messiah, and I realize now, if somebody can remind me, I'll try to, I'll try to bring in our, our list of the Messiah so we can trace it through history, but Shmuel is the next step. Um, remember, he teaches the entire oral tradition in one night, too. The Medrash Shmuel tells, tells us this. One night, we're going to see this in the future, David escapes, goes to Shmuel's, uh, leads to Shmuel, and he teaches them the entire uh, what, what the most seasoned student learns in a hundred years, David masters from Shmuel in one night. We'll have to understand what that means. Um, he also was interesting. He had a lot of unique qualities. He was the first individual who would judge, and the first judge, to go out to teach Tyra, because that's the real function of a judge, to teach Tyra. People don't know Tyra, they're not going to act well. That's how government works in the, in the ideal sense. Why the good judges? Um, shoftim, that's the term. Because judges also are the ultimate posek. 
who teaches Torah, who's the source of Torah. When you have an argument, you go to the judge, is the idea. So he's the first to go out and teach the, teach the people. He did not wait for them to come to him. He was, as, as it were, like a bookmobile. He was the, the mobile judge going around. He wanted to encourage them. He wanted to get everybody in the, in the act of learning. And his days were very special days. Chazal tell us during his time, the Jews did not fall to idolatry. Um, it's Shmuel, among his achievements, he's the first to institute two days for a certain holiday you may be familiar with called Rosh Hashanah, coming up soon in a couple days. So that goes back, the, the, the two-day celebration dates back to Shmuel, Hanavi. He never takes a public salary. He had, a, he had his own private wealth. He didn't have much money, but he, he subsisted on his own money. Um, he traveled with everything in tow. His, he was, a, as he said, his, you know, travel mobile, teaching Torah. Um, he never wanted to impose on others. Al-Tzitzarech Librios, don't put yourself in need of other people. He didn't, want, he didn't accept handouts. That was Shmuel, all extraordinary and unique qualities. Argimar in Makos tells us that his was one of three courts, three Bateidin, that had Ruach HaKodesh, together with Shame, back at the beginning of time, and, and later on Shlomo HaMelech is going to have another one of these Bateidin. Um, the Gemara in Sukkot tells us that Shmuel was one of eight princes among men, together with, interesting list, Yishai, Shaul, Amos, Tzephania, Tzidkiyahu, Eliyahu, and Mashiach. And Rashi says, I have no way of explaining this list. They're great individuals, but I don't know what, how eight of them are all together here. He ages prematurely because of three factors. The Chazal tell us he didn't have nachas from his children because of public service. You ever see those pictures of Abraham Lincoln before, during, and after? He ages. Oh, and Obama. Yeah, you can see with many, many uh, leaders. Shmuel also ages in public service. And finally, because of his disillusionment with the monarchy, with the kings, which is our real topic for tomorrow, um, he grieves terribly because of Shaul, the fate of Shaul. Um, we haven't left Shmuel yet, so don't bury him just yet, but I'm telling you now, he dies at the relatively young age, I'm done almost, at a 52, four months before Shaul dies, and, um, and, and he really heralds the transition from, um, from one phase in history of the judges to the next phase of the kings, and the Joshua said we start the kings, the first monarchy, tomorrow. Oh, you know we're